Time for Swordplay. Alex, a pastor in South Africa, alleges he visited hell and while there battled and killed the devil. That's right, Nick. And I'm so glad, too, because everyone knows that when someone as evil as the devil dies, they go straight to hell? Huh. huh. Wait, a, wait a second. What's going on here? <laughs> this is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, James chapter 4. On James chapter 4, it would be good for you to go back and listen to the podcast on James 1, 2, and 3. If you haven't done so already, also read the book of James. Pay careful attention to each verse because we're going to ask questions uh, about James chapter 4 now. So we start in verse 1. It says that uh, there are quarrels and conflicts among them. Nick, what are they fighting about with each other, do you think? You know, people fight all the time. You turn on the TV and you'll hear about the latest fight between a celebrity couple or what's going on in Washington, the Republicans fighting the Democrats or the Democrats fighting the Republicans. You tune into the news and you're going to hear about violence all over. When people get upset, the unfortunate reality is they tend to usually settle it with hostility. And so James identifies here, one key root to the problem in the church to which he's writing, and that is personal passions. Your passions are at war within you, he says in verse 1. And, I mean, it, the question that he asks there, it's rhetorical at the end of verse 1. Literally, it's something along the lines of, isn't the root of these battles hedonism? Uh, we actually get our English word. We're going to talk about this uh right uh, now. In fact, uh, James says passions. Your translation may say pleasures or desires. The the word there in the original is uh, hedone, and we get our English word hedonism from it. And that is what is causing this, uh, this strife, this internal strife in the body. It's uh, also probably on an individual level disquieting their souls, just kind of the source of all the tumult and turmoil in the congregation. It's their personal passions. That's what I see. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, and I think even more specifically, the personal passions uh, that are getting in the way really can be summed up as the love of money, hmm. uh, comparing what one has with another, finding life in the abundance of one's possessions, uh, bitter jealousy of others who have more so that uh, they close their heart to those who have less their selfish ambition to increase their lot to the extent that they lie against the truth in their heart about what they know they should do for their brother or sister in need. Uh, we know they're neglecting the orphan and the widow. They give special treatment to the rich. They ignore the brother or sister in need of food and clothing. They judge their poor brethren who suffer under the rich. They speak against one another, and they don't control their tongue, all because of the love of money, or so it seems. Hmm. Well, Alex in verse, the end of verse 1, and uh, as part of verse 2 as well, they, their pleasures, their passions, they wage war in your members. What does James mean by your members? Well, the first option is to take it in the sense that James is referring to the internal struggle for the believer. Uh, the ESV translation takes that interpretation. It words it like this. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This is the 
individual approach. And they'll even put a little uh, chain reference to Paul's letter to the Romans talking about not doing what you want to do and doing what you don't want to do, that internal struggle within the individual. The second option, which I favor, is the collective approach. James's reference to your pleasures that wage war within your members, I think, is a reference to the entire group, which would be the church. Each Christian, then, is a member of the whole. But James says that uh, it is at war with itself because of selfishness. The reason I favor the collective approach to this passage is because James has already done this, in my view, back in chapter 3, when he used the picture of the bit in the horse's mouth and the rudder on a ship, which I think refers to the words of the teachers within the church that are supposed to guide the church in the right direction. I think James is thinking and speaking collectively here and will continue to think collectively when we get to later verses, uh, especially verse 5, but we'll uh, unpack verse 5 when we get there. For now, we're on verse 2, though, and they are fighting and quarreling so that they can get what they want. But Nick, how would fighting get them what they wanted? Well, it wouldn't. (laughs) I think of uh, kind of a modern day example might be something like a church league softball game. You know, both teams are competing, they desire to win, but how often do these friendly exhibitions turn into a fist fight? And in that instance, <laughs> and in this instance here in James chapter 4, no one wins except for Satan. Uh, the devil wins when we fight like that. So uh, what I think, what about, what do you have to say, Alex? I think that's right. No one wins. In reality, no one gets what they want when everybody starts fighting each other. However, in the moment, though, of their deception and arrogance, the ones who are fighting, surely they think that they will get what they want, and it's illogical. I'm reminded of the parable uh, that Jesus told in Matthew 18, where a servant was forgiven a debt of 10,000 talents, and then after being forgiven, he went out and had a fellow servant thrown into jail for owing him 100 denarii. That's what these quarrels are like. They come from people who want to be forgiven and in favor with the rich unbeliever, but they fail to show any mercy at all to the poor believer among them. Now, I know I'm stretching the original context of the parable a little bit, but I still think it works here in James. Nick, in verse 2 and 4, James calls them murderers and adulteresses. Hmm. Why does James call them murderers and adulteresses? Kept in the context of Christian siblings. Apparently, uh, coveting what your what another brother or sister has, it would seem that James is using that word murder or murderers in this context in a way that the Apostle John uses it when he writes decades later in uh, 1 John, failure to obtain what another brother or sister has just produces resentment, disdain, uh, full-blown hatred. Uh, John, in First John, says everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Again, First John 3.15. So James brings these Christians face-to-face with who they've become. And it is far short of the character of Christ. They are covetous, and when they are frustrated by not getting what they want, they covet, fights and quarrels uh, break out. Um, same word here in verses, uh, in verse two, same as verse one, uh, for those fights and quarrels. And 
I mean, we're talking, again, church league softball fist fight. All right, that's what's going on here. So that could be Have the murder. softball experiences, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I am just aware of them, and I can neither confirm nor deny. Um, as far as the adulterous part here, while not calling them idolatrous <clears throat> because they have perverted prayer and they have battled their brethren, he calls them adulteresses. And James is reaching back into his Old Testament bag of tricks for this figure. And uh, the Jewish community in the Old Testament was personified as an adulteress when, in unfaithfulness, they abandoned God. Real uh, vivid example of this is the book of Hosea. Uh, that really, that book really brings this out to the forefront. Spiritual adultery has taken place in Christ's church here in the book of James. And these Christians, they were covetous, and we know that is idolatry based on Ephesians 5, verse 5, Colossians 3, verse 5, where greed or covetousness is equated with idolatry. And you also, and and um, uh, we're going to see this in verse 3, they've polluted prayer, they've distorted into something it's not supposed to be, and they have fallen in love with the world. That's friendship with the world that he talks about in verse 4 as well. So all of this uh, pours meaning into James's use of murderers and adulteresses here in verses 2 and 4. What do you think, Alex? I think that's right. James using murder and adulterous, uh, adultery as um, really what's what's at the heart of their conflicts and quarrels and anger and unfaithfulness by falling in love with the world. I think that's what you said. I like that. It's a good explanation. You know, James already used this potent combination earlier in chapter 2, uh, verses 11 through 13. He says that to break one of these commandments makes you guilty of the whole law. If you're not an adulteress, but you're a murderer, you're guilty of every point. Now, James, he's not even approaching it that way anymore. He's not holding back at all. He just straight up says right here in chapter 4, you're both, you're murderers and you're adulteresses. And so go back and listen, you know, if you want the deeper explanation of uh, chapter 2, the extensive breakdown. We have that now in our podcast on chapter 2 and how that continues to connect with the way Jesus interpreted the law for the kingdom which has now come under his reign, and that's in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Nick, in verse 3, why would you think it's wrong to spend what we have on things we enjoy? James says it's because you ask wrongly, right? Uh, uh, You ask amiss, uh, the old uh, King James would say. These Christians, they were seeking to use what they had received on their hedonistic desires. Um, And again, it's uh, uh, the passions there in verse 3, same word as we saw back in verse 1. Their asking is incorrect, and it's improper. Their desires, they are self-seeking when they should be seeking to glorify God with what he bestows and blesses upon them. You know, prayer is a powerful and uh, an effective uh, discipline that Christians have. Don't don't believe me? Just ask James. James says it in uh, chapter 5. Uh, we'll see it next uh, in the next episode. The effective prayer of a righteous person has great power, he says in 5.16. Uh, 
But only for the righteous who would seek to ask rightly is it powerful and effective. Even Christians can turn prayer into a gross form of idolatry, merely using God to get what they want. And so James identifies three common problems in prayer. One is not asking. Um, Two would be asking for the wrong things. And three would be asking for the wrong reasons. So let me just ask, oh, constant listener, how's your prayer life? In connection to what James is saying here, how's your prayer life? I like that reminder for our constant listener, uh, singular, one, one listener. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the question, you know, why... Why is it wrong to spend what we have on things we enjoy? Sounds like James is condemning that, but you brought out some good points from the context. Essentially, I would say it's not wrong to buy things you enjoy. However, in the context of James's audience, there seems to be a serious misuse of God's material blessings. The first thing they should be praying for is wisdom. If they have heavenly wisdom, then they will exhibit the virtues necessary for good stewardship of their possessions. And second, they should pray for the needs of others, not just themselves. But it should include themselves as a conduit through which they're willing for God to work through uh, in order to uh, bless their brother and sister in Christ who are in need. James accuses these Christians of having it all backwards. They're using earthly wisdom. Uh, It's not heavenly. And it's not that you shouldn't expect God to bless you. You should, however... You should not expect God to bless you if you also at the same time don't plan on being a blessing to others. Otherwise, you're that double-minded man that James talked about in chapter 1. You're that double-minded man in what you pray for. And James will call them that again in chapter 4, double-minded man. Nick, in verse 4, they are being friends with the world, but it doesn't say specifically how. How are they being friends with the world, Nick? Yeah, not a specific, and here's why you are friends with the world. But the context, I believe, would point to a number of things. The fighting, the quarreling, the jealousy, the hatred, there's pride, um, a perversion of spiritual things. Again, prayer, um, worldly passions. So, you know, just, just generally, all these things put together, they make this composite picture of you guys are acting like the world instead of acting like Christ. And so you guys are friends with the world in these ways, it would seem, based on the context. What do you think, Alex? I think that's right. In addition, if we look forward to chapter 5, we'll see that James is going to rail pretty hard against the rich who oppress them. And if you remember in chapter 2, that it's the rich who are the... Uh, Airing, who the erring Christians have shown partiality to in their assembly. And they have literally chosen to treat oppressive unbelievers better than their fellow suffering believers. Why? Because it might financially benefit them. That's the heart of what's going on here. Now we've come to what could rightly be called uh, the tough text of tough the day. Text. That's, That's right. right. Verse 5. Here's what the New American Standard says. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose, and then it sets aside a quotation? He jealously desires the spirit which which he has made to dwell in us. Well, Nick, where does the scripture say such a thing? Where does that quote come from? 
Yeah, this is the sticky wicket, as it were. Um, my English standard, by the way, says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. There are actually several explanatory options. Uh, one, some say James is quoting from a lost apocryphal work. problem with that is, every time hey graphe, the scriptures, uh, that phrase is used in the New Testament, uh, and James would be included in that, it is always in reference to the 39 books of our Old Testament. Uh, that's 22 books by the Jewish count, if I'm not mistaken. So that's one possibility. Eh, that doesn't have a lot of strength to it. Second is that this is a marginal reading, or what's called a gloss, that has found its way into the text just over the years of uh, transcribing and copying and all that. problem with that is, and it would, it would have to be a super early marginal note um, in order to find its way into the text because, um, well, every manuscript we have has this in it. Um, so, again, not a lot of weight to this second option. Third option is that others say that James is quoting from a New Testament book. Uh, the problem for me is I prefer the early date for James, probably the first New Testament document written. And that would make him quoting from a New Testament document virtually impossible. Now, if you take a late date, I suppose that would work, but that's an option. Option four, there are some who affirm that this is an early Christian creed or perhaps some, uh, or, or something from some early, now lost Christian writing. And this is not outside the realm of possibility, because as we've seen in other podcasts and other books of the New Testament, there are other early Christian creeds that have found their way into the New Testament. For example, Philippians chapter 2, uh, the Kenosis hymn there. Uh, I also think of First um, Timothy chapter 3, First Corinthians chapter 15, where you have other creedal material. So it's, this isn't outside the realm of possibility. Uh, a fifth option, some say that verse 5 is merely introductory for verse 6, where the real quote is, which is from Proverbs 3 and verse 34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Problem is, that's just not James's style. Um, we can go back to uh, 2 verse 23, where he quotes from Scripture, another instance where he does that, the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed. And so he actually he goes straight from the phrase, the scripture says, into the quote itself. So not exactly James's style. Not to say he couldn't do it, but it just doesn't seem very likely. A sixth possibility is James isn't so much quoting a single passage as much as he is summarizing a general teaching from the Hebrew Bible from a few or perhaps even from several different passages. Exodus 20, verse 5, Genesis 6, verses 3 through 5, Isaiah 63, verses 8 through 16, Psalm 42, verse 4, and there are others that could be cited as possibly being texts that serve as foundation for this principle that uh, James is plugging in here. Uh, Barnes calls this the general spirit of the Old Testament, which James is pointing to in this quote-unquote quotation. <laughs> um, and then the seventh possibility is that one author, uh, they actually lean, in their explanation of this, they actually lean pretty heavily on the American Standard Version's translation of this. 
which reads, or something to this effect, or do you not, or do you suppose that the scripture speaks falsely? Does the spirit that dwells in us strongly incline to envy? And so um, that's a possibility. It can be rendered that way, obviously. A pretty significant translation has put it that way. So, all right, those are the seven options uh, in my research that I discovered. Of those options, for me, uh, numbers four and six, I think, present the strongest possibilities. That is an early Christian creed or that James is kind of summarizing a general teaching from the Old Testament. If I had to choose right now, I would have to say probably four, I guess. I don't know. If I had to narrow it down to one, four, <laughs> uh, the creedal material would probably be it for me. But um, six doesn't it's, – it's a possibility as well. So a lot of options there, a um, lot of uh, research put into that one question because it is a tough – it's a tough text. It is. Where in the world is he quoting from? But that's, true. Uh, that's, that's what I discovered. Alex, what do you think about this quotation here? <laughs> Well, thank you for that comprehensive uh, breakdown and all of the options there. I lean right. towards option seven that you listed, that it should really read like two questions. Uh, or do you think that the scripture speaks in vain? Does the spirit which he caused to dwell in us long to envy? So this alternate translation, as the ASV puts it, uh, that would essentially be like a double rhetorical question. Yes, James knows that they know the scriptures do not speak in vain. They know that the spirit which God caused to dwell in us does not long to envy. And if this reading is correct, which I think it is, then this would give us a nice contextual link back to chapter 1, verse 13, where James told them not to think that in their temptations that God is ever tempting them. So just as the spirit which God gave them does not desire them to envy, so too God does not desire them to be tempted. I wonder if that's what may have been happening, that these deceived Christians would fool themselves into thinking that their selfish ambition was actually the Spirit of God moving within them to do these things. And that brings me to my last point about this question, uh, or verse 5 really. I don't think James is referring to the human spirit or to the individual dwelling of the Holy Spirit, but rather to the corporate dwelling of the Holy Spirit among their congregation. This would be in keeping with James addressing the whole congregation, uh, the illustration of the horse and the ship corresponding to the congregation, and the reference to war within their members referring to the congregation. If James wanted us to think of the human spirit, then I would have expected some sort of language about being made, like the Greek ganao, or breathed, um, but James chooses dwell. He chooses that word to speak about the spirit within them. And that dwelling language has its roots firmly in the Old Testament tradition that God's Spirit dwells among his people in the temple, which, New Testament update, is now the church. Not to deny an individual dwelling of the Spirit within the Christian, but to emphasize that there is also God's Spirit dwelling within the corporate body, whether it's when they gather as a congregation in their assembly, in their synagogue, or the universal church as a whole. That's my thought. Uh, by the way, the double rhetorical question uh, translation, um, that that is a typical, um, uh, typical style for James. He does ask a lot of rhetorical questions, so that also lends validity to that option. Ah, good Thank you for saying that. 
Well, verse 7, Nick, tell us your thoughts on James mentioning the devil. He says, uh, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Nick, tell us who is the devil and what is he doing among James's audience? Man, we could we could do a whole podcast just on spiritual beings and, and specifically the devil. Um, I've preached whole sermons about the devil. Um, did one, matter of fact, uh, I did a series on uh, <clears throat> Christmas at the movies <laughs> and the Grinch, how the Grinch stole Christmas. That was a sermon about the devil. Um, in the story of Christianity, the devil is the great antagonist. Jesus says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He is not a force. He's not a principle of evil. He is a personal being, a malevolent spiritual being. Uh, Satan was the first sinner. John tells us in 1 John 3 verse 8 that the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And uh, the way I view uh, the fall of Satan before Adam and Eve fell, Satan had already fallen. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, Luke 10, verse 18. And I believe his fall took place sometime even before the Garden of Eden, possibly in eternity past, but um, he's the first sinner, the original sinner. And he's also a murderer, James 8, excuse me, John 8, verse 4. Uh, Jesus says there, that, uh, well, just what I read, Satan was a murderer from the beginning. By deceiving Adam and Eve and tempting them, to, tempting them to sin, he was guilty of their spiritual deaths. He's a murderer. He's also the enemy of truth. Jesus says, John eight forty four again, he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. His own character or his native language is lying. There's no honesty, no integrity. Uh, so that's why it is like the how the Grinch stole Christmas. The Grinch hates Christmas. Satan hates truth. All right? That's Satan's nature. So in the congregation that James writes to, the devil is up to his usual work. The devil, he wants Christians to harbor and manifest jealousy and worldliness and quarrels and all that stuff. And the church is never more in line with the purposes of Satan than when she is demonstrating all of these things that James has been talking about so far in chapter 4. Listen. Satan is a powerful enemy, but he is not all-powerful. Satan is a foe who knows us, but he is not all-knowing. Satan is always around, but he's not omnipresent. Satan is none of those things because he's not God. Now, uh, the scripture does, I believe, aptly describe him as a serpent. One of the interesting things about snakes is they don't blink. They don't have eyelids. And so, Satan, he's always watching, kind of like in that movie Monsters, Inc., right? Always watching, right? <laughs> so creepy. His eyes are always open. And um, uh, it's kind of like also uh, Peyton Manning. He was, uh, he was my uh, favorite football player when he was playing in the NFL. And um, in his retirement speech, he said that other players may have been bigger, stronger, and faster, but no one was going to out-prepare him. And he would watch hours of film footage to prepare for every game. And and that's kind of what Satan is like. He can't be everywhere. He doesn't know everything, but he's watching a lot of footage and he takes good notes and he's gone uh, to the game film of your life and my life. And he knows our weak spots. He knows where we are limited. He knows 
what we would respond to. He knows what our likes are. He knows our fears. And he's good at what he does. Good news, the skull crusher has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) And as long as we are aligned with Christ and we have pledged allegiance to him and his kingdom, we still have a powerful foe, but uh, that junkyard dog is on a chain. And um, uh, he... He can't uh, hurt us like he could if we weren't aligned with Christ. So um, that's a bit about the devil. (laughs) Alex, what do you think? That'd be the name of a good a cappella song. Turning your songbooks to number 666, we'll now be reading The Skull Crusher. (laughs) (laughs) Singing The Skull Crusher. (laughs) (laughs) Might be the fastest four-part song we've ever seen. Well, (laughs) that was a good summary on the devil. I agree with most of that. Um I personally don't think there was a pre-Edenic fall of Satan, but I suppose we can hash that out in our future demonology series. (laughs) That should happen. I think that would be good. Um, And I strongly disagree with your parallel to the Grinch. The Uh Grinch repented, good sir. Ah, He returned the roast beast, I mind you. There you go. (laughs) I'll just add that by the time we get to the New Testament, the title of devil or Satan which just means adversary or accuser. Uh, by the time we get to the to the New Testament, that title had not only been attributed uh, to this ancient foe from the garden, but it also came to be somewhat of an umbrella term for the forces of darkness and demons, which perhaps have been consolidated under the power of this evil one. I'm thinking of when Jesus cast out demons and he's accused of casting out Satan by the power of Satan. Well, which is it? Did he cast out demons or did he cast out Satan? Well, yes, he cast out demons, but they are under the umbrella of Satan's dark forces. And all of that to say, you know, the devil may not actually know who you are personally, but some of the demonic beings might know and they all share the same agenda with the devil. So James says, resist him, and he'll flee from you. And ah, we're back to chapter one again. Where are these temptations coming from? Well, he says it's from your own lusts, and yet now James is pulling back the veil. Here is the tempter. Here is the deceiver. And so as the church wages war with itself, they forget that a spiritual war coincides with their actions. Resist the devil, control your tongue, pray for wisdom, love your neighbor. This is spiritual warfare. Now, Nick, he also calls these people to draw near to God in verse 8. And how do you even begin to do that, Nick? What does it mean to draw near to God? Man, uh... This is such a large topic. I mean, whole volumes have been devoted to this subject. I think of J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. I think of Henry T. Blackaby's book, Experiencing God. I think of John Piper's book, Desiring God. I think all three of these books are attempts by these pastors and authors to try to distill the essence of drawing near to God. So um, one answer can be right here in the text. Um, By... You draw near to God by submitting to God, by resisting the devil, by cleansing our hands, by purifying our hearts, um, by um, what else is there? Even um, the the mourning and the the, uh, weeping, and that is uh, part of it as well. That's part of repentance, humbling ourselves, all these things. 
I think, are ways in which we draw near to God. Or to say it another way, at the heart of submission and resistance and cleansing and purifying and humbling, at the heart of all that is drawing near to God. So I think right here in in James 4, we have uh, some instruction about what it looks like to draw near to God. And so, okay, constant listener, you're saying, okay, right, sure, but what else? Well, I mentioned Blackaby's book, uh, Experiencing God. I think he has some good stuff about how God speaks today. Notable examples are that um, God speaks through the Bible, his word. Uh, He speaks through prayer. He speaks through circumstances. He speaks through the church. Uh, John Piper, excuse me, actually plays off of uh, the the hedonism term, and uh, his theme is Christian hedonism in his book Desiring God. And I think that's appropriate because um, we already touched on non-Christian hedonism earlier. Uh, But Piper would include things like worship and marriage and missions and suffering. And both Blackaby and Piper talk about how all of this is dependent upon a love relationship with God. In other words, if you don't love God, you won't draw near to him. Uh, But when you love him, yeah, naturally you're going to want to draw near to him through these various avenues that that I've, I've pointed out here from their book. So um, just some ways in which we can draw near to God. But again, a lot can be said about this. In fact, Alex, you're going to talk a bit more about it, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, you covered a lot of ground there, and it is a broad topic. Um, you mentioned that in the text that drawing near to God is also tied to cleansing your hands and purifying your hearts. And so I wanted to hone in on that for just a second. This is an interesting note. All three of these terms, drawing near cleansing, purifying. These are all stock terminology for things that happen at the temple and within temple ritual. So just as James has uh, taken the law of Moses in earlier chapters and brought out its fullest conclusion in Christ Jesus, the law of liberty, so too we now see James alluding to our true spiritual form of worship. We are cleansed, purified, and draw near to God through Christ Jesus, our perfect sin offering and high priest, We know that, they know that, but what must they do? In a word, they must repent. And James will describe repentance in the next verse, but be assured that James has in mind good works accompanying their repentance, bearing fruit with their repentance. And the word that I think connects that idea is the word cleanse, because in the Greek, it's the same word used in chapter 1, verse 27 for what's translated in in the NASB as pure, where it says pure and undefiled religion is to visit the orphans and widows in their time of need. And so I think this connects the idea that cleansing their hands and doing the work of God by visiting those in need, helping them in their time of need, that's a part of the cleansing process, living out Christ in our lives. In verse 9, he says, you should, you should be miserable, you should mourn, you should weep. Now, Nick, that sounds a little extreme. Why should they do all of those things? Yeah. Uh, so the first part of that verse, verse 9, can be translated, be sorrowful, even mourn, even weep, with a, kind of an effect in which each of these commands builds on the next. Um, so James, he exhorts his uh, Christian siblings here to, to feel bad. They need to feel bad about what they've become. They've become murderers. They've become adulteresses. And then second, he tells them that they need to feel sad. Uh, They should be grieved. Uh, 
They should mourn over their present condition. And then third, they feel bad, they feel sad about their circumstances, but these feelings should break forth into weeping and wailing. And the emphasis on this command is upon the uh, the noise made. And so James, uh, he says also in verse 9 that their laughter needs to be turned to mourning, joy to gloom. Um, and so... Yeah, that should be turned into mourning accompanied by weeping, a sorrowful expression. Just, again, noise, the noise of, of sorrow. Uh, don't be glad at your present situation. You need to be sad about this. Uh, and when God's people adulterate the relationship with him, look, that's not a time for gladness. That's a time for sadness. It's a time for sorrow. And this sorrow then should drive the repentance bus, as you mentioned uh, as well. That's That's what it looks like here in verse 9 is, all of this grief driving toward repentance. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, that uh, godly repentance that leads to uh, the godly sorrow that leads to godly repentance. I was right. just reminded that Paul mentions in Second Corinthians. Uh, I'm also reminded of the Beatitudes again. Uh, James alludes, I think, to the Beatitudes in pretty much every chapter so far. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are you who weep now, for ye shall laugh, Luke six twenty one. I think these Christians that James rebukes, they have a similar problem to what Paul dealt with in 1 Corinthians 4.8, where he says, you're already filled. You've already become rich. You've already become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. The kingdom of God is both now and yet to come. We're in the kingdom now, but not every enemy has been made a footstool for his feet yet, 1 Corinthians 15.25. If James's audience wishes to share in the kingdom to come, they need to shape up and live like Christ is reigning over their hearts now, or else they will not reign with Christ when he returns. Uh, they're getting a little ahead of themselves. Now is the time to repent. First, be miserable, mourn, and weep over your sin while you still have the chance. This is the time for sanctification, and it's not until when the kingdom comes in the resurrection that they can have their um, pleasures and their their uh, laughter and their joy, and uh, they can be kings. But that's, that's not what right now is for. Right now is for being Christ's body on earth, to be his hands and feet, to do his will, to do his work, to take care of those in need. Any thoughts, Nick? No, that's, that's good, good, good connection to the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, verse 11, James refers to uh, the law. Now, which law does James refer to? So one thing that, that um, I want to note immediately is that there's no definite article before the word law in the original language. So James is speaking simply of law, not the law. Um. Also, I think it should be noted that James exposes um, sin here in a striking manner, showing its relation to law and law's relation to God as the lawgiver. What you'll find just kind of perusing the commentaries is that uh, they'll say that this is the law of Christ. Um, so that's a possibility. At the same time, I think it should be noted, James has already spoken of royal law, previously in uh, 2 verse 8. <clears throat> and uh, when he did, he appealed to the scripture, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 19.18. So it just seems that James, in a similar way here in 4.11, is 
appealing to that same royal law. Specifically, he seems to have in mind the ninth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Uh, So I think that's a bit of what's involved here. What do you think, Alex? You know, James uses law in several ways throughout the letter, so it does get a little confusing. The law of the land he talks about through the courts and the oppressive rich taking them to the courts. Uh, He speaks of the law of Moses via their Jewish heritage when he quotes the Old Testament. Um, And he talks about the law of liberty in Christ Jesus via their faith, that royal law to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, which we see in the Gospels, you know, loving God, loving your neighbor as yourself, that summarizes all of the law and the prophets. And just to throw another concept out there as we do these theological gymnastics, uh, it was also common for Jews at that time to view someone's poverty or someone's wealth as a reflection of their spiritual condition. And thus, the the poor among them, uh, they were suffering by the righteous judgment of God. You see this in the Gospels, like when the man born blind is thought to be a sinner or born of sinners, thus his blindness, John chapter 9. Also in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, there's a divine reversal. The poor Lazarus, one presumably born in sin, actually goes to Abraham's bosom when he dies, while the rich man, presumably spiritually blessed, he goes into torment. And so James seems to combat this same false presupposition by saying, no, 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 it's the brother in humble circumstance who is actually in a high position, James 1 verse 9. And it is actually the poor of the world whom God has chosen to be rich in faith, James 2 verse 5. And so all of that is to say, I think James is referring to the law of Christ, the royal law, the perfect law of liberty, because what they're doing is they're judging their poor brother as actually being less valuable and less spiritual because of his poverty. And therefore, they have become a judge of Christ's law, which says the opposite of what they have concluded. So they're disagreeing with Christ's law. They're disagreeing that their poor brother is spiritually rich in faith. And if you're a judge of Christ's law, then you're outside of Christ's law. You're not a doers of the law. You're a law unto yourself. And that's the way James puts it. Well, they are speaking against each other, speaking against one another. But what are they saying exactly, Nick? Verse 11. Well, it seems that brother slanders brother, sister slanders sister. Uh, so generally this could be false reports, false charges, um, discrediting your brother, your sister, disesteeming them. Um, that may be a new term I coined. I don't know. Um, <laughs> all of that could be in view here. Specifically, in addition to that, James will include judging into the discussion uh, in verse 12. Who are you to judge your neighbor? And so here are siblings passing judgment on one another, uh, signing them off to hell, as it were. And so speaking evil about one another uh, to other brothers and sisters. I think that all that is involved in what they are saying against each other. And you say? Yeah. Again, I would just refer back to my last answer. I think they are probably saying something about their wealth or lack of wealth being a spiritual reflection, to which James says, you know what, you're right, but it's actually the opposite of what you think. You have it reversed. You think the rich are spiritually rich and the poor are spiritually poor. It's the opposite. 
So, Nick, in verse 12, it says they're judging their neighbor. This is obviously seen as a bad thing. How are they exactly judging their neighbor? In what way? By speaking evil against a brother or a sister in Christ, what has happened is they are no longer a doer of the law, but are in fact a lawbreaker. And I appreciated your discussion uh, a couple questions back about that. So James, he's highlighting the severity of this sin, and he's pointing out that speaking evil and judging a brother, that is tantamount to speaking evil and judging the law, which right. is a big deal. Absolutely. And they're judging... They're judging the poor as less valuable to the church and thus as less valuable to God. That's wrong, and that's uh, backwards, and that's evil. And James calls them out for that. And then he says, ah, you, you talk about we're going to go here for a year, make a profit, do such and such, engage in business, and he condemns that. Now, Nick, is it really wrong to make business plans and to turn a profit, as we see in verse 13? Yeah, James, is, he doesn't condemn their wealth or their ability to to get gain as much as uh, condemning their haughty and prideful attitude. Mm. Um, They don't even know what tomorrow will bring, and yet they're boasting over what they plan. And so James is critical of the relative ease in which they kind of leave God in the rearview mirror as they venture forward in life, trying to make new inroads of industry here and there and all that. So... Uh, that's what I see here. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's actually uh, with great irony that these entrepreneurs would make big plans for the next year, no doubt thinking that they were seeing the big picture, right? Staying one step ahead of things. And then James, he comes and he pulls the rug right out from under their feet and he says, oh yeah, by the way, your entire life is like a vapor. You're here and then you're gone. <laughs> he says hmm. he says something similar in chapter one about the rich in verses ten through eleven that you're like the flowering grass. Here you're you're here one day and then the next day you're brown and dead and gone. <laughs> That's true. So it's uh, the big picture. You know, it's not their business plans for the next year. It's it's their character as a Christian. What are they going to do with the little bit of time that they have here on earth? Are they going to use it for? Uh, the business of lining their pockets or the business of God's kingdom and taking care of God's people. It's not wrong to run a business or to turn a profit. Don't get me wrong. That's not what James is saying. That's not what I'm saying. But if you have no regard for God's will and the care of his people, then your plans are in vain. James would say your faith is in vain. You know, if you think that's going to work out for you in the end, ask the rich man and Lazarus how that turned out. Hmm. Now, Nick, in verse 15, James says, if you're going to say these things, at least say, if the Lord wills. Now, how will saying, if the Lord wills, make any difference to their plans? It's still the same plan either way. I mean, is this just one of those, like, taglines that, like, sort of like a safety spell? If you just utter these words after whatever it is you want to do, it makes it okay. It whitewashes it. What do you think? What comes out of our mouths is a reflection of our hearts. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I think I've read that somewhere. Um, our life and our every moment is dependent upon the Lord God. So our speech should reflect that we truly trust God. This is contrasted, it would seem, with what these arrogant boasters have been saying. And we see just how theologically blinded um, they had become. These Christians believed that things just kind of continued on as from the beginning, which is not Christian thinking. 
Just see more for more on that. You can see Second Peter three and verse four. That's not the way things are. There is more than meets the eye, and so uh, again, it's a reflection of our hearts. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think that you're right. And and when we even look back at Israel's history, right? When God blessed Israel with the promised land, He strictly warns them in Deuteronomy chapter eight. And I'm going to hone in on verses 16 through 18. He says, Don't think to yourself, Ah, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But he says to remember that God gives them power that they need to work and to make wealth. So it comes from God, the strength to work. This is why he first tested them, it says, in the, in the wilderness with the manna in order to humble them. And so too, I think James is reminding his audience If the Lord wills, we will live and work. If we're still alive, then we are obliged to do the will of the one who keeps us alive, who gives us life, which I think necessarily implies that we're not going to operate on selfish ambition, but rather on God's wisdom. And that's the problem James addresses here. Now, they are boastful, though. They are arrogant. Why do you think, Nick, in verse 16, making plans would be boastful or arrogant. Have you ever heard that uh, God, uh, when he, what, what God thinks is funny or God laughs every time he sees someone making plans? Is that, is that boastful? Is that arrogant, Nick, to make plans? See you tomorrow. See you next week. See you next time. I mean, we, we, we say those things so effortlessly, sometimes thoughtlessly. We take for granted that we will be alive to see so-and-so or such-and-such tomorrow, next week, or next time. But this world is uh, transitory. It is insufficient in and of itself. And so to make plans with only this realm in mind is a critical mistake. And I think James is calling for a more thoughtful Christianity, One, uh, one that recognizes the sovereignty of God in everything. And so I think that's what's really in back of what James is, is saying here is, would you at least think <laughs> uh, before you you know go making your plans and all that? Uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think it's not really even boasting about the plans themselves that's happening because planning is fine. Uh, it's a boasting in the arrogance is the way James words it. The arrogance of thinking that you are entitled and empowered to always get what you want. Now, we don't have entitlement problems today, do we? Don't care how. I want it now. <laughs> Veruca Salt. There you go. I want to read the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. And this is regarding the Day of Judgment. It says this, Then the righteous will stand in great confidence against the presence of those oppressing him and those rejecting his labors. When they see it, they will be stirred up with terrible fear and be amazed at the unexpected salvation. They will say among themselves, repentant and groan because of the distress of their spirit, this was he of whom we once held in derision. And in a proverb of disgrace, we fools considered his life madness and his end without honor. How was he counted among the sons of God and his share is among the saints? So we were misled from the way of truth, and the light of righteousness did not illuminate us, and the sun did not rise on us. We were filled in the ways of lawlessness and destruction, and we traveled through untraveled deserts, but we 
do not know the way of the Lord. What has arrogance gained us? And what has our boastfulness about our wealth benefited us? You know, if James was reading the Septuagint, uh, I think he would have been familiar with this passage. And I think this passage provides a nice cohesion for what James has said in chapter 4 and what he will say in chapter 5. A lot of touch points there, a lot of uh, clearing up of, of what was going on, I think, in the back of their minds, what James might be appealing to. Oh, by the way, Christian, you should read your Septuagint. <laughs> get yourself an English Septuagint if you ever get the chance. Now, Nick, he ends this little section by saying, if you know the right thing to do, but you don't do it, that's sinning, that's sinful, that is a sin. Well, what exactly was the right thing James expected them to do? Verse 17, Nick. Verse 17 begins with, therefore, uh, or in my English standard version, so. uh, That's uh, indicating that this principle is clearly connected with what he's just taught in the preceding verses. And contextually, James has made known the right thing to do. You who say ought to say, right? I mean, that's that's the thing. And um, failure to do that is sin. And so just do it. <laughs> the, uh, that is acknowledge the providential care and the sustained uh, sustenance of the Lord God. Cease and assist in living as though you are guaranteed tomorrow. I like that word entitled that you used. Uh, Even entitled to the strength uh, to do what you had planned tomorrow. Depend upon God for all future plans. Um, At the same time, uh, again, you peruse the commentators, and they are in near agreement that this phrase was a principle which was in circulation among Christians. In fact, some suggest that it goes back to the words of Jesus from Luke twelve forty seven, that the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, uh, will did not act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. How often we know the right thing to do, and yet we do not do it. And so specifically contextually, it has to do with you who say this, you ought to say this, and then I think generally it can be applied as kind of this general principle. Uh, what do you think, Alex? I think that James's audience, I think they know exactly what the right thing is to do. They just don't want to do it. Yeah. They need to visit the orphan and widow. They need to value the poor. They need to feed and clothe the brother or sister in need. They need to bridle their tongue. They need to pray for wisdom. They need to stop fighting. They need to endure their trials. All of these would actually be done quite naturally if they loved God first and also their neighbor as themselves. So for as deep and complex as James wants to get, it still goes back to these two things that sum up the prophets and the law, which is at the heart of the Christian law. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Any final thoughts, Nick? Um, You know, that 14th verse, we kind of mentioned it in passing what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And, you know, partly it's pretty self-explanatory. Life is short. And we are not guaranteed or entitled um, tomorrow or the day after, any of that. And so James 
is really emphasizing the need to live for God today. Uh, today is the day of salvation. And so, uh, yeah, we, we really need to be mindful of that, that we only have the time that God graciously gives us. Our lives are in his hands, and we need to make the most of today as long as it's called today. Uh, so live for God today. What, is, what does that mean for you? Listener, does it mean that uh, you need to make your life right with the Lord? Uh, does it mean you need to be uh, you need to obey the gospel and be saved? Uh, does it mean, as a Christian, that there's something in your life you need to turn loose of and get rid of? Um, uh, does it mean you need to go and make things right with a brother or a sister uh, that you've become cross with? Mm-hmm. Um, all these things, I think, factor into what James is talking about here. So. Yeah, you are a mist, you are a vapor, and uh, we need to ever live with that in our minds and live for today. Uh, What about you, Alex? I'll just say amen to that, Nick. (laughs) That was well said. Why don't you tell our audience how they can help the podcast? Yeah, so you can, uh, well, one, if you can't get enough James, I've written a commentary on it, lifefromthepulpit.wordpress.com, L-I-F-E, fromthepulpit.wordpress.com. It's uh, the right-hand column. You'll see the tab for James there. It's all indexed for you to uh, go back and and read the in-depth writing I've done on this. You can go into the iTunes uh, podcast. You can go into Google Play Music stores and you will find, if you search Swordplay, you'll find uh, the, the podcast, the previous episodes we've done. You can download to your, those to your particular device, take it with you, leave a review. That'll help us uh, get the word out, boost the podcast in iTunes and Google Play, respectively. And also, you can share this on social media and help us get the word out about the podcast that way as well. Uh, Alex, if people have a question, can they send it in to us? Absolutely. Send your questions to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to mention your question on the air. Uh, if, if you want, mention your name and discuss it and bring it to the table. Uh, we're open to what you have to say and what you think. We really want to hear back from our listeners out there. I mean, our listener out there in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully, um, we will get enough questions and maybe do a whole episode on it. So we have exciting things in the, in the works for future podcast episodes, but for now, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time on another episode of Sword Play. Sword Play.